Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm your co-host, James Bucciolato, here with my partner in crime, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And I just want to take a moment to remind everyone before we get into it here, usually I do this at the end, but please uh, follow us, our podcast. We're available on all sorts of platforms. If you're listening to this now, you know that we also have a presence on social media. So please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Every time you like it and share it, it helps spread the word. So we appreciate that. We're about to get down and dirty with the DEA. Let's get moving on this. this yeah. Is, this is going to be a, a like a roller coaster ride. So uh, buckle in. Yeah, we have a, a really distinguished guest here with us this afternoon, Leonardo Silva. As Leo was a DEA agent. He was stationed in Texas, then Mexico, then back in Texas, and he's going to talk to us about that, investigated the cartels. So, Leo, thank you for joining us on the Original Gangsters podcast. Oh, wow, guys. It's, a, it's an honor to be here, to be with you guys here. Yeah, I appreciate that. Can we, there's some specific things I want to ask you, but before we do that, can you just sketch out your background, how, how you became involved in law enforcement and how you ended up in Texas and Mexico and just some of the, the greatest hits from your career. Sure. Uh, you know, I was actually, when I was in college, I was studying to be a, a teacher actually. And uh, my mom at the time worked in a law firm and one of her uh, coworkers husband was a DEA agent and he took a liking to me and he kind of recruited me. And afterwards, uh, after learning a little bit more about what DEA was all about, I decided to switch careers. I, I still ended up majoring in English, and, and I still have that background, but but I ended up uh, applying for DEA, and uh, I got hired way back in 1987. I was I was 22 years old at the time, and, uh, you know, it was, it was to me, it was the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. So uh, right over the academy, I got stationed in McAllen, Texas as a rookie, 22-year-old Hispanic agent here in McAllen, and right away, I was thrown into the fire and, and uh, started doing undercover work. You know, a, a young guy like me, a Spanish speaker, a fluent speaker. So I did a lot of undercover work, and I was fortunate to learn from some of the best agents that uh, I've ever met. Uh, my partner who passed away, uh, Mario Alvarez, and uh, another agent by the name of uh, Bobby Brightwell. You know, I learned a lot from those guys. So you were able to see in real time the rise of the mega cartels, if you will, because... Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you first started off, would that have been the Guadalajara cartel was probably the main organization as opposed to, you know, what do we have, five or six now? Is that, would you say that's correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. At the time, uh, they were still in power. Uh, you know, uh, Rafael Caro Quintero was, was still on the run. And, uh, you know, they were starting to fracture, but they were still very much in power. Uh, so, yeah, it was exciting to see all that. And, uh, of course, here on the border in McAllen, Texas, uh, we had right across the border, we had what's, what's the Gulf Cartel. You know, at the time, it was run by a, a guy named Juan Garcia Abrego. And Juan Garcia was one of the first Mexican traffickers to, to deal with, with Colombian sources of supply for cocaine. You know, a lot of people think, well, Chapo started all that. No, it wasn't. It was Juan Garcia Abrego in the mid-'80s who actually started receiving uh, uh, multi-ton loads from, uh, from Colombian traffickers. So can you tell us about what was it like, the, the atmosphere to be an agent in, in Texas? Because 
not so much now in Detroit, but when I was teaching in Arizona, a lot of my students were criminal justice majors and they wanted to work on the border, either DEA, ICE, FBI, Homeland Security. So I think they may find this interesting. You know, they would like to, to have a similar career path as, as your own. What, what was the atmosphere like to be a young agent right there in the, in the heat of the action? Oh, it was, it was outstanding. It was great. I had some of the best times of my life. I mean, uh, you know, as a, as a kid right out of college, you know, going straight into doing undercover work and arresting, you know, heroin traffickers and cocaine traffickers was, was a, very exciting for me. And the, the atmosphere around here was, was like, well, this is a, what we call a target-rich environment because we're right on the border. This is the, pretty much the front lines. So, I mean... If you're an agent here in the border and you can't make a case, it's because you just don't want to because you can probably just walk outside your door and, and run into an investigation, right? So it was, it was a great time for us. You know, we uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, when you, you go and you, you do a couple of search warrants, make that. sometimes we did up to 10 search warrants in one day. And you, you come back and you, you, you put the load, the, the, the dope back in the vault and and all the cars that we seized and everything, and then you go have some beers with your buddies. I mean, it was it was a time of my life. Were you aware? I mean, as a as a young, strong guy, the world ahead of you, were you aware of how the precarious nature of this? I mean, did did the cartels have a reputation for targeting U.S. agents yet, or was that was this a little bit before that? Or can you comment on that? Yeah, you know, when I got in, I got in '87, and and the. Uh, you know, Camarena, Enrique Camarena was kidnapped in 85. So there was still that resentment between Mexican law enforcement and uh, U.S. law enforcement because of uh, the Camarena kidnapping. And, uh, well, at the time, traffickers kind of, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't target us because they didn't want any more heat brought to their organization, especially because of the Camarena investigation and, and all the things that happened with that. So uh, the last thing they wanted was to target one of us, uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, get themselves in trouble with their own people. Uh, even though we did have an agent that got killed here in 1986, right before I got here on an undercover deal. Um, this was uh, William Ramos back in 1986 on New Year's Eve uh, doing an undercover deal. Uh, you know, there was a struggle for a gun and the, the, the gun went off and, and ended up killing our agent. So. Uh, but I wouldn't say we were targeted. Um, they had some respect for us. They actually feared us, you know, back then. So, uh, you know, it, now now it's it's different. It's a totally different environment. I mean, they they have a lot of uh, technology at their at their uh, availability, you know. So it's just changed so much from when I was a street agent, you know, on the street working undercover buys and stuff like that. That's interesting. I mean, I, I think there used to be somewhat of a code, like we think of with the Italian mafia, that obviously they don't like law enforcement, but there was a kind of mutual respect that, you know, this is cops and robbers. They're, they're going to try to, to get us, and we're going to try to, you know, evade that. But But they would never have considered taking a contract out on a member of law enforcement. And it sounds like maybe there was some of that, code with with the cartels at least maybe 20 30 years ago but that as you point out it seems like that that has changed yeah that's changed a lot um but yeah there was a code there was kind of a code and uh, 
and uh, it was respected and, and they didn't come after us and well we went after them but it was just strictly to uh to seize drugs seize their money and, and put them in jail right but I mean, we were going after them to try and kill them. You know, it was just, it was just uh, doing our job. It was just business, like they say, right? Was the Camarena situation the, you know, the watershed uh, mark where, where everything changed, where, where it became more personal? I would say so. I mean, yeah, it was a, definitely a key moment in, in DEA, especially for agents in Mexico. It was a very bad situation. I don't think we'll ever really know the answers to what really happened out there. I know there's a bunch of shows, you know, on Amazon and stuff, but I don't think we'll ever really get the answers. Um, but uh, it was a watershed moment for especially agents working in in, uh, in Mexico and, and other parts of the country. Enrique Camarena was assigned to Guadalajara office, and he was he was a case agent on the on the Guadalajara cartel, and he had uh, conducted a, a bunch of seizures. Uh, he, he seized this uh, marijuana growing ranch. Uh, from Carlo Quintero, which entirely pissed him off, and uh, and we think that's what caused uh, Quintero and his his people to to kidnap Camarena to see who his contacts were, who his informants were, and you know those guys back then they didn't, you know, they didn't respect cops like 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 they do now. I mean, in Mexico, if you're a cop, you're just you're just one of them, right? So I think they had that same mentality towards U.S. cops, and they figured, well, uh, you know, he's a cop just like the ones here in Mexico, so, you know, we're going to torture him and kill him, just like they do the cops over there. But they, they had no clue of the fallout that was going to take place after, after that incident. So they kidnapped Camarena to see what kind of information he had. I think they, they went overboard with the torture, and he ended up dying. So they, they take him out to some ranch, and they bury him, him and his pilot, who was an informant. And, uh, you know, there was so much pressure from the U.S. government on the government of Mexico to, to locate Enrique Camarena that, that I mean, it changed, it changed the game for, for everyone in DEA at the time. So Camarena was a huge, huge, uh, huge factor in, in, uh, in both countries trying to work together, you know, so... Uh, you know, even when I came on in 87, I mean, there was, there was still, you could still feel that there was a lot of resentment. There was still a lot of fugitives that were involved in the kidnapping that hadn't been caught. And and we're trying to catch every single one of them. And and today the main guy, Rafael Caro Quintero is still on the loose. Uh, The Mexican government released him uh, prematurely in 2013 without even uh, letting us know. So he's, he's on the run right now. And, He's a priority right now for DEA. I mean, would you, you think it would be accurate to say, and uh, I know we've tried, we've been emphasizing this the last couple of minutes, and, um, but just to kind of wrap it up and, and so we can kind of move forward in terms of the, the evolution of uh, your career as well as the, the evolution of, of the war on, on drugs at an international level, um, that the U.S. government or the the DEA, FBI, ATF, their uh, battle against international drug trafficking, specifically in Mexico, you know, you can kind of draw that delineation, you know, before and after Kiki Camarena, which was in early 1985. 
uh, in terms of the way that the game was played, in terms of the stakes, in terms of the you know, life and death nature of everything, uh, it, it seems like everything post winter of 85, I think uh, Camarena was kidnapped in January of 85 and they, they eventually found him in February or maybe he was kidnapped in February and they found him in March. But uh, it seems like from that point forward, it, from, the, from at least the United States perspective, everything went into a, a higher gear, a higher level priority, more resources, more intensity. Would you say that's true? Yeah, that's true. Uh, especially on the southwest border down here, uh, they started uh, uh, building up the offices down here, you know, uh, because they realized the importance or, or the significance that these cartels had in in transporting these drugs across into the United States, and it's all here on the southwest border, from Brownsville, Texas, all the way up to El Paso, Arizona. You know, so they did start focusing more on, 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 on us down here, providing more resources, more agents. And uh, in Mexico, the same thing. I mean, they started uh, uh, asking for more agents to, to be assigned in Mexico. Uh, once once some of the leaders of the Guadalajara cartel were, were arrested and that, that cartel was kind of disbanded, it, uh, it opened the way for guys like El Chapo Guzman and... Uh, you know, like I mentioned before, Juan Garcia Abrego to, to start moving more drugs and become more powerful. All these guys from the Guadalajara cartel, like Caro Quintero and Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, those were Chapo's bosses. Chapo was just a driver. He was nothing. And when all these guys were out of the picture, well, he just conveniently stepped in and and uh, and, 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 and took some uh, leadership position there. And, and uh, he is where he is today. If, if I can ask something else about the, the Camarena case you mentioned that you don't think we'll ever know all of the details surrounding his kidnapping and subsequent torture execution is it safe to assume that somebody within mexican law enforcement gave him up is that, is that why it's such a sensitive controversial situation well there's no doubt that that mexican law enforcement was involved i mean that, that's not really a secret i mean all, all, all the 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 state police in, in Guadalajara at the time were on the take you know they they were under the control of the cartel, they were part of it. So there's no doubt about that. That's not really a secret, but there's been other speculation about U.S. agencies having a, an involvement in that. And, and I don't, you know, I really don't lend myself to conspiracy theories, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, I don't think we'll ever know the answers to that. I want to ask a logistical question here. Um, again, when it kind of comes to the evolution of, of this uh, cat and mouse game, uh, between law enforcement and the interna international drug traffickers that are uh, bringing drugs across the border. W w explain the significance of the leverage point uh, of of having the, a Colombian wholesaler at that time, uh, that Abrego was able to um, cultivate that, and why that was such a game changer, and, and how that gave him or his organization uh, a leg up. And then obviously kind of, set a trend going forward where that, that was the, the kind of standard operating procedure. Yeah. But what happened back in those days in the early eighties, like, like 83, 84, you know, Colombian cocaine was, was being transported through Florida, through Miami and South Florida. Uh, so 
back in the 80s, 84, uh, there was a task force, a special task force that, that was built up in, uh, in Florida to, to stop some of these, these loads from coming in from Colombia. And they were so successful at it that the Colombians had to find a, a different way to get drugs into the United States. Well, guess what? Well, here's Mexico. Here's Juan Garcia Abrego, and here's the Sinaloa cartel. That they're, they're here in Mexico. But it was Garcia Abrego that really started. And, and what he did is he negotiated a deal where, where with the Colombians where, okay, let's say I'll move 1,000 kilos for you, but 500 is going to be mine. And that's how they got paid. They didn't get paid in money. So he would move the, the Colombians uh, 500 kilos, and he'd have 500 kilos for himself that he would sell, and that's how he made his money. So that's how he started. So the deal was that the Colombians would keep the market in Miami and all along the East Coast, and Garcia Abrego started, you know, Houston, Dallas, Chicago, uh, the Midwest, uh, even out to Arizona. Uh, so that's how it all started. And, and later on, Garcia Abrego just started buying his own loads from these guys. And, and uh, uh, eventually some of these other guys caught on. But when Garcia Abrego started this, I mean, man, he, he, was, he was raking in the money. I mean, a kilo of co- cocaine back then, I don't remember what it cost, but, you know, it was, it was quite a bit. Um, I, I think if I remember correctly, back in, in 1987, a kilo of cocaine went for twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars 25000 a kilo. So, uh, and now it's, it's much less. I don't know what it is now. I think it's down to 12 or 11 or something like that, maybe even 10. But back then, that was a lot. And these guys were bringing it in, you know, uh, you know they're bringing in ton quantities uh, on a very, uh, very continuous basis. So that's how Garcia Abrego started you know, his, his empire. And eventually he got, he got arrested in Mexico and extradited to the United States. And that's when Ociel Cárdenas took over the Gulf cartel. But when Ociel takes over, he, he starts this, you got to understand Ociel Cárdenas was a uh, very paranoid guy. He's always afraid somebody's going to dime him out or, or try to kill him. So he forms this security group called the Setas. And these guys consist of, of uh, uh, special forces, soldiers from Mexico that either retired or deserted in the army. And that was his uh, security detail, uh, special forces, soldiers that he had in place to, to protect him. And that's how all this stuff started. And that really kind of brought out this, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, paramilitarization era with a lot of, uh, of these organizations where they were, they weren't just like drug enforcement crews. They were like special ops. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not laughing at the, the, the severity of it. And right. There was obviously a lot of bloodshed, but yeah. you, you were talking about going from, you know, kind of common thugs right. to well-trained soldiers. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The Cia Abrigo was, was from the old school, you know, he, he, uh, he was a businessman. He he uh, he dealt his drugs, and you know he didn't kidnap people unless you know they they crossed him in some way. But when the setas came 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 on board here, they just changed the game totally. It it was just on another level, really. 
you know, once Ociel Cárdenas got arrested, they started gaining more power because the leaders that, that Ociel Cárdenas left in charge, uh, they just didn't have the ability that Ociel did. And the guys that were in charge on the SEPA side were very smart. And they were smart businessmen as well. And they figured, well, hell, we can take over this. We can be our own our own organization. We don't need the Gulf Cartel. So that's when they decided to break and they started to go to war with the Gulf Cartel. And that's when I was in Monterrey at the time. And, and uh, let me tell you, it was it all hell broke loose. It was crazy. Well, let me, just to, to Scott's point and Leo's point, so once the Zetas established themselves, and as Scott pointed out, these guys have elite military training, that leads to an escalation because now the rival cartels, they know they can't match that with just your common street enforcers. And so there's this real escalation of that we need to have our own paramilitary group to combat the Zetas. And then also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Leo, it was a numbers game. The, Z- the Zetas dwarfed uh, a-, a lot of those other organizations in numbers when it was all kind of said and done and everyone was at war. Am I, am I right? That's correct. They had a, they, they recruited in, in, in a lot of the states in Mexico and uh, they would actually go on the radio stations, uh, these clandestine radio stations and, and uh, recruit people. And they were targeting mainly uh, soldiers because that's what they wanted. They wanted that specialty. You know, they wanted somebody that had some skills. So, so, I mean, you had guys that were skilled in explosives. You had guys who were skilled in counterinsurgency, you know, uh, you know, snipers. You had all these kind of guys with specialties. And, and yeah, they were, they were unmatched. I mean, they had, they had over, I mean, you, you take the whole country of Mexico. At, at one point, they had over a thousand members. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Chapo's people, they didn't, they weren't former special forces or, or, or stuff like that. So, yeah, they, they were no match. So these car- other cartels had to start recruiting the same type of people to, to try and uh, fight the us. And when you talk about counterinsurgency, I think that's really interesting too about what the Zeta started, which is to, so it's not just about controlling access to drug distribution. It's also about instilling fear in populations Right. I mean, you, you get this type of military approach to counterinsurgency where you want to paralyze communities so that no one or that everyone is afraid of this organization. That seems to be to me something that was that was radically different. Would, would you say that that's true, Leo? That is that is absolutely true, because they, they completely paralyzed Monterrey with fear. Not only Monterrey, Monterrey is in the state of Nuevo León in Mexico. The whole state, I mean, I'll go far as to say the whole country, because that's how they operated. I mean, you know, I know this is a, a it's called the Original Crime Podcast, and it, there's a lot of gangster types that come on the show, but that's what these guys did. They kind of copied the model from the traditional gangsters in Italy, and they used it here in Mexico. I mean, they'd go to a, they'd go to a store, a mom and pop store, and say, we need you to pay $1,000 a month for security. For insurance they didn't pay well guess what you know they'll come back and they show a picture of your kids or and the school that they go to so we're going to give you one more week to pay and if they didn't well they burn the store down or kidnap one of the kids it's, it's typical traditional uh organized crime and these guys took that model and used it in mexico and they instilled fear in the whole country 
And, you know, I'm writing a book, by the way, called Reign of Terror. And that's what it talks about, about how these guys were just able to come in and take over a whole city uh, and just paralyze them with fear. And the government would kind of, the, the municipalities there, instead of, you know, resisting it, it became almost entrepreneurial to be a police officer or a politician in those environments. Like, you know, just <laughs> grease my palm and you can, you can have our city. Is that overstating it? No, it's not because all the, the police, the police force, the municipalities were an extension of them. These guys were the eyes and ears for the sentence. Uh, if, if they see somebody on the street that they think is is uh, is from another cartel, I mean, these guys, you know, they were they were on the on the payroll for the setas, and there was a lot of operations that we conducted in Monterey where we seized lists of high-ranking, you know, police officials in in the municipalities that were being paid off. I mean, this was a payroll list of all these people that they had. It was hundreds, hundreds of them, entire police forces. So yeah, the police. You have taxi drivers, you have shoeshine boys. All these guys served as, as lookouts somehow for the, for the settlers. And, and another, something I imagine you'll talk about in your book, not to get too gruesome here, but when we talk about using these counterinsurgency tactics to, to paralyze a community, I think this is where we start seeing examples of like beheadings and, 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 or, or hanging bodies from bridge overpasses. I mean, just really gruesome something out of a horror movie. It's beyond organized crime. It's something out of a horror movie. And and I think part of that was designed, again, to paralyze a community, to send a message that this isn't just about gangland, um, you know, uh, feuding. This is, we're going to annihilate you if you're not, if you're not with us. What do you, can you comment on that, Leo? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was kind of a shock and awe thing, you know, you see something like that and, and it, I mean, it's obviously going to shock you. I mean, this, this had never happened before in Mexico, you know, and, and this was happening on a regular basis on a daily basis. You'd see things like this. And then it was, it just totally paralyzed, you know, communities. Uh, well, I mean, we saw, we saw bodies being hung from bridges and stuff, you know, people being uh, uh, dragged in the street, you know, by their feet, you know, and, and just, Things that are just incredible. I mean, these guys—they—they they, they just took it to another level that nobody had ever seen before in Mexico. So, kind of take us from your, you know, early days in your early twenties when when you first start off, and then kind of bring us into you know the the eye of the storm. I mean, obviously, you were in the eye of the storm pretty quickly, but as you got further into your career, the the deeper you got in, the more. Um, acclimated you got just you know kind of ex- explain what you're what's going through your head and you know how you're able to kind of mentally emotionally and physically i guess you know deal with the the wear and tear of the job as you got deeper and deeper into it yeah well you know um, when i first came on the job like i mentioned before my uh, my partner at the time was a guy named mario alvarez uh you know he was he was an old old uh, what you call bndd agent BNDD. BNDD was uh, was the DEA before we were DEA. It was called the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. And those guys were some bad guys, man. They were tough guys, you know. Uh, so Mario was my partner, and I was uh, I was lucky to to learn from him. And Mario was stationed in, in Guadalajara in the 70s, and uh, 
he would tell me all these stories, you know, we all be drinking beers and he'd tell me these stories about his times in Guadalajara and uh, all the cases he made over there. And I was just intrigued, you know, and I, and I said, man, I won't, I, w- I would like to do that one day. So I spent maybe the first 15 years of my career here in McAllen, you know, doing undercover work and other cases. And I put in for a slot in Guadalajara and, and I was able to get the position and, uh, I got my first taste of what it's like to work in Mexico. And I was hooked, man. I mean, you know, like they say, if you want big game, you got to go where the big game is. And that's exactly what what uh, working in Mexico and Colombia and some of these other countries is like. So, I mean, I went to Guadalajara. I was there for uh, two, three years. Uh, I got a big taste of, of uh, working Super, super cases. You know, there was uh, uh, this trafficker from Michoacan by the name of Armando Valencia who was bringing in 20-ton loads of cocaine at a time. I mean, if that's not big game, I don't know what it is, man. So once you get to working a case like that, it's hard to go back and work small cases. So, I mean, I, I was just hooked. And uh, after my stint in Guadalajara, I came back to to the border and I was working a, a task force here. And we made some very, very good cases here too. But since we're so close to the border, we worked really close with our office in Monterrey. So we had a lot of uh, cases that overlapped and we worked together and uh, it was a good relationship. And at the time, the guy that was in charge of the office in, in Monterrey, he transferred out. So I put in for that spot and I got it. And I arrived in Monterrey in uh, 2008. I did some temporary assignments there in 2007, but I officially arrived in Monterrey in 2008. And at the time, the the setas were just they were just starting to to take over the city. And their leader, well, the, the, their leader was Heriberto Lascano, but his second in command was a guy named Miguel Trevino, who they call Z40, the Zeta 40. And at the time, Zeta 40 was man, he was just he was wreaking havoc all over Mexico. He killed some, uh, some uh, significant contacts that we had, some police contacts in Mexico City, uh, federal agents. He killed some of our contacts in uh, Monterrey. And I remember my boss calling me at the time to Mexico City for a meeting. And he sat me down and he said, I just got into Monterrey. He sat me down and said, Leo, I want you, this, this is going to be your priority. Miguel Trevino is your priority. So he says, I, I want you to get him, you know. So we uh, we applied all our resources towards uh, him, Miguel Trevino, and his uh, and the CEPAS to uh, dismantle him and catch Miguel Trevino. So that's, that's where uh, the story starts, man. Let me ask you about the geopolitics of the situation within the underworld. So the Zetas split off from the Gulf cartel and then and then they start fighting but then the Zetas at one point start to fight uh Chapo's group in Sinaloa so the Zetas they they're they're fighting a, a war on multiple fronts is that is that correct that's correct that's correct so and in the end I think that's what that's what kind of weakened them because you know Chapo sees an opportunity sees a hey, you know these the Zetas are, are they're, they're being tracked down by by you know the military and DEA and every, every agency you could think of, federal police and everybody. So now's the time to hit them. So Sinaloa cartel comes in and they try to take 
take over their territory in Laredo. So they're at war with, with Sinaloa, with federal agencies and military agencies, and that's where they started kind of weakening. You know, so our strategy at the time was to uh, take out their leadership, you know, systematically take out their leadership, and, and uh, that way their power would be drained. And that was the strategy that we had and that we, we stuck by. And, uh, you know, to this day, I mean, you know, the Setas are not what they used to be. They, they fractured and they're different kind of, I couldn't even tell you how many uh, little organizations there are that call themselves Setas or whatever now. But, but uh, yeah, they were fighting wars on a lot of fronts at the time. So I'm curious about your experience here. You were a field agent, then you were a supervisor, and we already talked about the precarious nature of this work and not sure who exactly you can trust. How did you navigate through that? Obviously, DEA, you have to have joint investigations with the Mexican government, Mexican police. How did you, as a field agent and then as a supervisor, how how did you navigate through that in terms of trying to sort out who you can trust, who maybe you sort of can trust, and then who just, you're like, no way, we can't, we can't work with this person. What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was kind of difficult, but you know, um, you just have to make it work somehow. Uh, we had our, our, from the federal police, we had a special investigative unit that we, that we worked very closely with. And those guys were trained by, by our agency in, in Quantico, Virginia. They were brought over to Mexico and sent to different parts of Mexico to work. We had our little unit in Monterrey that we, that we trusted, but there were only three guys, man. And, you know, they, they couldn't, they always had to call for permission in, in Mexico city and bring reinforcements down to help them out. So, so, you know, we used them, but then we started leaning more towards the military and the military is a different ball game. You know, you, you have the, the Mexican army and we started using them a lot, but what happens is, uh, you know, the more successful you are sometimes with, with these operations that we conducted, some of the leadership, in, like, in, for example, in the Army, we had this little group that we worked with, and, yeah, we, we did so many operations. But those guys were so successful that they started getting promoted, and they sent them to different parts of Mexico. And that left us with, you know, people that we didn't know. And they didn't have the same philosophy as our, our other little group did, so things started changing. So at the time we were kind of, well now now what do we do? We don't have our our, our army unit. So then I got in touch with uh, with a colleague of mine that that knew of a uh, a navy captain that was working there in Mexico, and they were chomping at the bit to get into this action. So he introduces me to the navy captain, and and uh, and we start using them. We start using them, and that just totally changed the game in Mexico. They were our go-to team, man. We, we, we trusted these guys. These guys were highly trained, um, and, and that's kind of how we navigated those things. We, we, we knew who to trust. We knew that, hey, you know, these people, these people know who we are. I mean, we work in the U.S. consulate. There's nothing we can do about that, but they didn't come after us. Uh, they they, they kind of respected that. But once we worked with the military units, I mean, man, that was just, that was our bread and butter right there. That's how we were able to navigate all this stuff. Well, just to point out again the precarious nature of this. So 
we're talking about how there's, you know, corruption at the local level, but in this case, you're finding guys that you can trust, that you can work with and rely on, sort of in the in the middle ground here, of especially military personnel. But then the higher-ups you may not be able to trust. Can you comment on the case against, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Zapita, the, the former defense secretary of Mexico. Uh, have you been following that? that case at all, Leo? Oh, yes, yeah, so with the general? Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I forget his name right after that, but yeah, I was I was following that. Um, at the time, at the time that we were we were working, uh, the president of Mexico at the time, Felipe Calderon, gave a, a marching orders to to the army and to the navy, to the, to the Marines. We want these sectors eliminated. So, they they were glad to cooperate with us because the president told them to do so. So we didn't have many problems in that regards because everybody was working towards one common goal. And that was catching these guys, especially Mientrevino. Um, and, you know, they may be, they may have been doing whatever they were doing behind our backs. But as far as this mission was concerned, they were, they were all in. Yeah. That must be a, a challenging position because you have a directive, right, that the Zetas are particularly dangerous and violent and they're trafficking a lot of narcotics. So your your main directive is to, to uh, take out this organization. But I imagine that rival cartels like Sinaloa, they're probably sharing intel with the government and the military because – they also want the Zetas out of the way. And so sure. um, it's just a, a fascinating world. It reminds you of like counterterrorism, right? You, you know, you're not always sure who you can trust and you have dubious sources, but sometimes the, they dovetail in, into a common interest. So if there's good intel, I, I suspect you have an obligation to follow up on that, even if the intel is coming from a dubious source. Right. There was, there was times where where, you know, we got the information, but, you know, we, we got it from our counterparts and, uh, you know, hey, we'll, we'll follow up, we'll, we'll vet the information, make sure that it's, uh, it's viable, and then we'll act. I mean, anybody can come in and, and tell us, you know, Joe Blow over here is, is hiding a ton of coke in his house, but we have to investigate and, and vet it before we actually take any action. Sure. Yeah, that in Mexico, makes sense. In Mexico, in Mexico, that's what we did. You know, before we gave any intelligence to our to the Marines or to the Army or, or the federal police. So, what do you think the landscape is now? You've mentioned that the Zetas are are on the decline. They're still around. I I don't want people to think that they're not still around and dangerous, but but certainly they're not operating at the same scale as you point out. Uh, we know that El Chapo was incarcerated. Uh, what 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 is the current landscape in terms of? Who are the major players, the, the major cartels El Mencho. calling the, sh- the shots uh, today? Yeah, right now, the, the, the most powerful cartel in Mexico is Cartel de Jalisco, Nueva Generación. Um, they are the most powerful. They have the most manpower, firepower. Right now, they, they are number one. And that's El, Men- and, you know, that's El Mencho, can... right? That's El Mencho? Yes, that's correct. That's correct, yeah. Uh, people can argue that, uh, you know, Chapo's sons are, are wielding a lot of power, but I don't see them lasting too long. You know, not against these guys. These guys are, they're, they're very well organized, highly trained, just like the Setas were. And uh, there's just so many of them. I mean, and they're taking over everything. When they first came on the scene, 
their their mission was to con- take control of all the the major ports in Mexico, and I think they've done that already, except for maybe one or two. And and why do they want that? So that they can bring the drugs in from Colombia, or they bring in the precursors from China to uh, to uh, manufacture fentanyl and methamphetamine. So they control all the ports. Well, you know, they control pretty much the industry. Yeah, and you already addressed this a moment ago, talking about extortion. And my understanding is that the contemporary cartels are diversifying their racket. So it's not just about drugs. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is still about drugs, but they are diversifying the rackets. They're getting into extortion, controlling the ports, human trafficking, even I've heard read investing in like, you know, legal casinos being like the, maybe not on paper, the owner of the casino, but they're investors in casinos. And so in a lot of ways it is, it reminds you of like the Italian mafia, which is, you know, never rely on, on one specific racket. Um, does that seem like uh, that that's the case with, with this new, new cartel? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and guess who started that? The Seco started that model. You know, they do extortion, prostitution, uh, gambling, uh, uh, the, the stealing of, uh, of petroleum from from, the, from Pemex. Anything that could make money, these guys were into. So, you know, the, most organizations have stolen that model and they're using it. Uh, the big money maker right now is human trafficking. You know, I've heard from some guys saying that there's more money in that than there is in, in trafficking drugs. No, that's that's my understanding too. And I this is a a gruesome thought, but the idea is right. Like narcotics, you use it once and it expires. Whereas a person, whether as a, a either a sex trafficking or or labor, or it's not just sex trafficking. Right. It's also working in sweatshops and things like that. But a person, right, a lot more value. Right. There's more. Uh, sure. That horse has more more uh, yeah. stamina, more legs, more right. uh, yeah. stain power, if you will. Yeah, more stain power. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 horrible to think about, but that that's what's happening. You mentioned China. Um, can you comment on what's going on now with the fentanyl? I mean, I think I'm I'm not sure that enough people are aware of the current situation. I think there's still this idea that the opioid crisis is because. Doctors are prescribing, over-prescribing medications, and I, I'm not saying that that doesn't that's happen. Part, that's but, part of it, but, but that's far from right. a, a full, fully right. painted picture. In terms of the scale, right? In terms of scale, I I don't think that that's the issue right now. I think the issue is is street opioids uh, being trafficked from Mexico and the chemicals provided by China. Can you talk to us about that, Leo? How that you know kind of connect the dots internationally? Sure, you know, and, and it's one of the biggest epidemics right now in the United States. Uh, this fentanyl is terrible. I mean, I was reading a, a deal on Facebook today where this little girl uh, took a pill that she thought was, a, uh, I don't know, some sort of painkiller. Uh, one of her friends gave it to her, and she took it not knowing that it was laced with fentanyl, and, and she died. You know, that, that's not an overdose because we're talking about a college student straight A's and you know it's not a your typical drug addict she just took it because she was out of her meds and you know how it is sometimes you know, I'll, I'll let you use one of mine well the, 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 girl, the girl that gave it to her bought it on the street and you know some of these things are laced with fentanyl and uh, well it killed this young girl so it's very dangerous because people sometimes don't even know what they're taking it's not like oh I'm buying fentanyl I'm gonna I'm gonna do it 
Now these things are buying Oxy or Xanax or stuff like that, and and it's not. It's laced with fentanyl, and that's what's killing people because you just you just don't know what you're taking. Uh, so here the the deal is that Mexican traffickers are very creative, and they're always looking for ways to make money. So as you know. You know, the, the, the cocaine is supplied from Colombia, Peru, uh, Bolivia. So these guys are thinking, how can I do it so I don't have to cut these guys in anymore? So what they did is, and I, I saw this back in when I was in Guadalajara, they started bringing in, they started bringing in precursor chemicals from China into Mexico, and developing these super labs in in, in Mexico, in, in Jalisco, in Michoacan, and Colima, Mexico, and and, and the manufacturing meth. They started off manufacturing meth in the late 90s. So <clears throat> they start doing this, and guess what? They're producing their own product. They don't have to cut in the Colombians anymore because it's theirs. They're, they're producing the product. So most of the profit goes to them. It's, and it's, it's uh, cheaper to, to distribute, and they're making tons and tons of money. Uh, I, I read a, a report the other day where they're making at least a ton of meth a day on a daily basis. So um, that's quite a bit, and it's all coming over here to the United States. So what they also discovered is, is they discovered how to manufacture fentanyl on their own. So they, same thing, same model. They bring the precursors from China. They have these huge labs, mega labs in, in Mexico, and uh, and that's where they produce the fentanyl, and they 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 put it in meth, they put it in, in heroin, you know, so that's that's basically a connection and, and all of that is coming over here. And you know, for the listeners that are out there, it's it's only two milligrams of of fentanyl is a lethal dose. So if you look at it, one kilo one kilo of fentanyl is enough to kill five hundred thousand people. That's just something to think about. That's how dangerous this drug is. And is it correct, my understanding, Leo, is that that it's not the cartels, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, defend them, but it's not the cartels that are lacing the drugs with too much fentanyl because the argument is that they, they don't want customers to die. They want customers to keep on buying drugs, that it's, it's guys on the street that are, once they get the drugs from Mexico, then they're lacing it themselves with 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 fentanyl, with, or I would say with more fentanyl for whatever reasons they have. Uh, is, is that your understanding that this is, this is a problem like at the, at the street level or is it both? Okay. It's both, but it's more, more so at the street level because these guys, they, they, they probably market their drugs as saying, Hey, well, you know, mine is, mine is more powerful. So you'll get a, a bigger high, you know? Right. So, you know, so I think it's, it's more so the street level people that are doing this, but like I say, it's, it's highly dangerous. Um, uh, as far as meth is concerned, it only takes one time to use meth to be hooked. You're going to be hooked once you use it one time, and, and that's that's super dangerous. You know, I, I have grandkids, and I just I don't want to see this in the U.S., man. You know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's scary. My understanding is that the there's actually I mean, opioids are getting all the attention right now. But my understanding is that emergency rooms are are seeing a spike again in in meth related um, incidents. So that hasn't that hasn't gone away. Um, so let me ask you: We know that that Mexico is importing the precursor chemicals from China. My understanding is that the cartels' their long term 
plan, though, is to eventually be able to manufacture those chemicals themselves domestically, and then, then, they, can, then they don't have to have the, the you know, the um, involve the Chinese. Like right now, my understanding is they don't have the industrial capacity to to manufacture those chemicals themselves. Maybe they don't have the chemists, um, but, but long term, that is what they would like to do. Is, does that sound right to you? Yeah, and I, and I think there's certain uh, sanctions that that that, uh, that are in place that that prevent Mexico from having those chemicals here, and and China doesn't have those sanctions. So I think that's that's a little loophole that 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 they're using right now. So those those uh, chemicals are being produced in China because Mexico has sanctions in place so that they can't be produced. So uh, I think that's that's the what's holding them back. But hey, eventually, like I said, these guys are very creative. Eventually, they're going to find a way. They're going to find a way to do it. You know, after all, they're, they're criminals. They right. don't care if there's a sanction. You know, they don't care if there's a sanction there. They're going to find a way to do it somehow. And whatever makes them more money, they're going to do it sooner or later. This must be sensitive, again, back to the, the geopolitics where, and we know this has happened for decades, where the, the DEA is trying to bring something to the attention of the State Department or the White House or the DOJ. But, you know, there's sensitive diplomatic things going on, right? There's a lot of trade with China. They finance a lot of our debt. I mean, we don't have to get, you know, partisan or ideological here, but just talking about the geopolitics of the situation, China's very powerful. I, I, I have to imagine that there are some people at higher levels of our government that may not be as enthusiastic about clamping down on, on China about this for, for their own economic and geopolitical reasons. Would you comment on that? Well, I, I, would, I would believe so. I really have no knowledge about that. I mean, you know, when, when I was down there, we we worked with the Mexican cops and we were just trying to do our, our, our job. And, you know, whatever happened up up in the big palace, you know, well, that's, that's beyond me. And, uh, uh, but I don't, I, have, I don't have any doubt that it's taking place. Sure. Yeah, it's a sensitive situation. So did you have any direct involvement in the case against El Chapo? No, no, because El Chapo, we have an office in Sinaloa, and, and those guys basically worked that case, and uh, some of our agents from Mexico City. In Monterrey, where I was, we were focused, we had our hands full with the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel, and uh, we, we were minimally involved in the, in the Chapo deal. I have a good friend of mine who's with the U.S. Marshals who was, was a big part of that case, and he's got some really good stories that he'll put into a book one of these days, but but the, I, I was not part of that. Our office was not. Okay. What do you think about the, the the so-called kingpin strategy? It's something that I've been critical of, but I, you know, I'm I can criticize it as a criminologist. I'm an outsider. I wasn't in the field like you were. But the the criticism is that when you take out the kingpins, then those organizations become decentralized. But in some ways, they become less stable, and that actually means they're they're more violent. And and that the taking out the kingpins actually correlates to more gangland violence. And I, I'm 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 not sure there's there's an answer to that, but I'm just wondering, from your perspective as a professional, if you could comment on that argument that some criminologists make. Well, the way I see it is is when you take out the, the kingpin, you know, the, the top dog, you're sending a message to everyone else that hey, you're not, you're not untouchable, man. You know, we're gonna find you. You know, look at Pablo Escobar, look at El Chapo. 
uh, you know, the intervino and the Carlos and all these guys, they all meet their end sometime. And it's, it's basically sends a message to these guys that, hey, you may be big and bad right now, but it's not going to last forever. You know, we're going to get you eventually. And yes, they do fracture. And in some cases, there is a, a tendency for more violence. The thing is that if you, if you see it, if you compare it to like a corporation, you know, you take out the CEO, the, the level of leadership is not going to be there like there was when the CEO was in, in place. So the, the, the level of leadership diminishes. And uh, that's when, that's when the, they become vulnerable. So, I mean, that's, to put it in a nutshell, that's kind of our strategy. I understand. So, Leo, tell us about some of your future projects. You mentioned that you have a book on the horizon. What, what's going on with you? Right. Yes. So I'm writing this, uh, the book about my time in Monterrey with uh, my, my team that I had there. And uh, it's called Reign of Terror. I'm, I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm very close to finishing it. Uh, we've come out with uh, West Coast Publishing, who I signed with last month. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to the public, you know, giving the public an insight into into that uh, into that uh, time period. Are you writing it yourself, Leo? Yes, yes, I am. I mean, it's just it's just you and your you and your memories and your thoughts and a and a, a computer. That's correct. That's what That's, I'm doing. It's pretty awesome, yeah, man. So I'm excited yeah, to so, I mean, get a look. Let me let me just ask you one one question. Um, that I wanted to, to, to uh, throw your way. How did you keep your sanity through all of this? Like, in, in your career, how, how do you keep from, like, you know, going into a, a, a room and locking the door and just being like, I'm not coming out for another month before I can, you know, get, get my head straight? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, there's, there's times when I, when I felt like that. I mean, um, if you recall, there was a time uh, one of our agents, well, a nice agent, Jaime Zapata, was killed in, in, in Mexico, and um, uh, my office, we were we were in charge of uh, of tracking down the killers. So that was that was a highly intense period in my life, you know, where basically I went for like six weeks with just a minimum amount of sleep for those six weeks. And uh, I remember coming back to McAllen, where where I live, and uh, and I was just completely out of it, and I was I was like. I was, I was sincerely afraid I was going to snap and I was just going to kill someone. So, I mean, I, I, went, I went to my doctor. He gave me some medication, you know. So, uh, And, and uh, you just need some time off sometimes and just step away from it and, and go back. Uh, but it was a very, very challenging time. Uh, we lost many friends, uh, some close friends of mine that were killed down there. So uh, it, it's hard, man. You, 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 uh, I hate to say it, but sometimes you get used to the loss, you know, um, it's like shit, you know, uh, we just have to keep moving on. It's like being a soldier. I mean, I've never been at war before, but I would guess it's like when you're, you know, in the, you know, in the trenches in, you know, hand to hand combat warfare and you're losing members of your unit on a regular basis. Right. It's like, it's like, well, and, and I don't think it's that, you know, there, there are a lot of analogies here with the type of law enforcement, work you were doing in terms of being in a war as opposed to, you know, everyday people in a corporate environment, you know, making war analogies. But I think this is actually a pretty apt war analogy where if you did stop and, and just pause and shut everything down, you you would lose your focus and lose, you know, maybe an edge of, 
of having your defenses up, which would then make you vulnerable. So it's almost like right. you can't right. sit there and mourn them for, for too long or, or you're, vulnerable, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're a sitting target. Right, exactly. And many, many times, you know, I had, I had the ability to just come back home. I call my boss and say, look, man, you know, I need, I need some time off. So, you know, my family was back here in the States, so I would come back and, and just, you know, blow some steam off here and, and, and spend some time with the family and uh, recharge the batteries and then go back, right? So that, that helped me a lot. There's some guys that can't. They don't have that luxury. Monterrey is pretty close to, uh, to the border here, so it's only two hours from the border. So I was lucky in that regard that I was able to, to come back and forth and spend some time with the family and just forget about it for a little while. And, uh, you know, that was... If it wasn't for that, I don't know what would happen. Yeah, I mean, it I mean, it really was. I mean, I, I'm not sure people... I mean, I, I don't think it's just an analogy. I mean, I don't... I think some people are unaware of how much violence is occurring south of the border. I mean, tens of thousands of people have been killed in these drug wars. So it is... It is comparable to what's going on in Afghanistan or yeah, all, Iraq. All due, all due respect to the the dozens and dozens of federal agents that I've developed relationships with and have such respect with that work organized crime, that work the Italian mob families uh, in America or work some of the, the, the big high-profile drug gangs in some of the inner cities in America. But, you know, again, all due respect to them, that that is, I, I feel like it... it, it they're seeing a modicum of the violence, bloodshed, ruthless mentality, uh, utter, you know, uh, just no, 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 life is so cheap. There's, there's no, uh, there's, there's no, it's like a bottomless pit of despair in terms of the type of people that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis that uh, I don't know if it really compares to just your traditional high-level American law enforcement working traditional organized crime. Yeah, it's just it's just a different ballgame. It's it's a whole different world. I, I I'm trying to describe it as best I can in this book. It's, it's just another world, man. It's it's a it's like a, a crazy you know underworld that's that's operating. You know, and it's. it's I hope I'm able to, to capture the spirit of, of, of what that is in, in this book. You know, I'll tell you a story because some people don't really understand the, the magnitude of the violence. Uh, Miguel Trevino, just to make it, you know, real short, real quick, one of his rivals, you know, he, the rival apparently killed one of his close associates or brother or something. So he, he finds who it was. He gets the, the rival who happened to be a Colombian. Uh, he just got married, had a little a little baby, about six months. So he he has the rival and he has him tied up, and uh, he gets the baby, ties it ties him up by the legs, and he has this vat full of oil, and he says, "So you have you know you have the the balls to kill my my brother." Well, watch this, and he dips the baby alive into this vat of burning oil. See? So this is the type of mindset that these guys have. They just have no regard for life or, or anything. You know, there's just nothing there. Yeah, I, I try to explain to my students that when we talk about some of the cartel stuff, this is you can't compare it with traditional gangsters. This is a different level of sociopathic behavior, almost serial killer 
Like it's it's, it, it's it, the it's like it at, transcends traditional organized crime. It's the epitome of the term, and and Leo just used it is you know an utter disregard for for human life. Right. And to say life is cheap is almost a a, a vast understatement. <laughs> yeah. 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 This guy just there's there's nothing there, man. He he at least like you say I, I compared him to a serial killer. In my book, you know, I say hey, you know, everybody talks about Charles Manson. Well, Charles Manson is in kindergarten compared to this guy. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, this guy was just way out there. Yeah, that's I mean, that, that's scary. Um, we'll, we'll try to wrap up on a more positive note here. Um, Scott and I are big movie fans. And, Leo, we hope that after your book comes out, it's very successful and that you get a movie deal. It sounds to me like this. I could envision this being a, a film. And I, and I hope that becomes the case. Who would you like to play special agent Leo Silva in, in the film <laughs> adaptation of your book? <laughs> wow. Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, but I have thought about it, believe it or not. And, and, uh, this actor that comes to mind is, uh, Isai Morales, he used to come oh, out in uh, I love NYPD he, I Blue. love Isai Morales. Yeah, I think he'd be perfect. He was in the first season of Ozark. The first time that uh, right. I laid eyes on him, I think a lot of people laid eyes on him. Um, La Bamba. <laughs> was La Bamba where he was. I, I honestly believe he should have got an Oscar nomination. Who did he play in he, La Bamba? He played Richie Valens' brother. Was, oh, my God. That's, uh, a, that's a great movie. That's he, an old, that's an 80s movie. Yeah, but he, was, he had a. I love a, that movie. It was a great performance. And then. Uh, earlier in the '80s, he was in kind of a cult classic with Sean Penn called Bad Boys, uh, oh, where, yeah. where yeah. Sean Penn was the leader of like a Irish youth gang, and Isai Morales was the leader of a of Hispanic gang, and they meet they they're on the streets, and then they meet in prison. And um, I'm a huge uh, Isai Morales fan. That's cool. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's one, a one of the more underrated actors of of our. We story. hope he hears this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> And you, I hope he does. you guys can put a and, movie and project. Let me together. let me cap that with a uh, with one more uh, movie uh, entertainment related question. What would you say is the best portrayal of the, the 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 cartel world or the world of law enforcement going after the cartels um, that that you've seen? I mean, I, I know there hasn't been a ton, at least in terms of American. Uh, you know, North America filmmaking or television, but, you know, I can think of a few that I enjoyed. Did anyone that, that you'd like to point out uh, specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, I, I like to watch, you know, I, I love movies just like everybody else, but some of these shows are, are kind of uh, exaggerated, but the closest one I ever saw to the real deal uh, was the series Narcos. The first two series of, of Narcos were, uh, you know, they, they detail uh, uh, Jaime, Javier Peña and, uh, Steve Murphy's, uh, you know, quest for uh, Pablo Escobar. So the first two seasons of Narcos, that that's a pretty realistic glimpse of of, uh, of uh, the way DA operates in other countries. Yeah, I mean, did did you see the uh, Sicario films, Leo? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. But you know, it's, it's a little exaggerated okay. to my taste. Okay. Yeah, it's it's yeah. kind of geared to being like an action. He film wasn't more he than wasn't a, playing a DA true agent, crime. And, but I loved Benicio in uh, Oh yeah, he's in, cool. tra in traffic. Yeah, and he was playing a Mexican police officer right. that was yeah right. obviously had very conflicting emotions. Right. Um, I love. But that I movie. thought I thought that was just uh, an outstanding performance. Right. He's a cool dude. Like he just looks cool. He just has to stand there and he looks. <laughs> he looks like a cool dude. <laughs> so, this was great. This was really uh, you. Uh, you laid it all out on the line. You know, didn't. Uh, 
didn't you know it's like we we uh we ate the the whole the whole plate we just yeah he didn't we sanitize clean, we cleaned anything. the whole plate yeah we ate the steak the mashed potatoes our peas we had a nice uh milkshake and pe- uh, pecan pie for dessert this was a this yeah. was an amazing interview and like i said we, we we got all the meat off the bone you've done it all you've said it all and you really you've lived a we've said this to a number of people on our show and, and every time i say it, it's true you've lived a movie script and uh <laughs> And you come on the other side of it to tell your story. You're a great storyteller, and, and you're obviously a, a great patriot, someone that, uh, you know, put his life on the line for our country, for law enforcement, for, you know, fighting the good fight. And uh, this is the kind of stuff that Jimmy and I live for, to get people like you on our podcast and be able to pick your brain and hear your stories. And, and they're just an amazing story, and you're a great storyteller. And, and I know that the, everyone listening is going to really appreciate this. Yeah, when, and when your book comes out, Leo, um, I hope you'll come back on our show so we can talk about it again. Definitely. I will really be looking forward to it. Okay, Leo, thank you very much. Good Thanks luck with everything. Me. Go Cowboys. We're going to get in trouble. All right. <laughs> We're going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble for shouting. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you take care, Leo. Good luck with everything, and I'll stay in touch. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Take care. Original Gangsters Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. Scott Bernstein. Peace. Peace.